I'm continuing this week's topic of pre- and postnatal development, and this is uh, slide 38. We've been discussing fetal alcohol syndrome, the most common preventable form of mental retardation in this country, um, which affects nearly 400,000 infants born in this country every year. If you could be pregnant, don't drink, not even a little. It is potentially devastating for an unborn child. Smoking, similarly, uh, is legal, is common, and unfortunately a large number of pregnant women continue to smoke. Pregnancy and smoking don't mix. While smoking during pregnancy isn't associated with any gross birth defects such as the uh, microcephaly associated with fetal alcohol syndrome, it is associated with retarded prenatal growth, physical growth, with low birth weight, with higher incidence of sudden infant death syndrome, um, which occurs when infants die for no obvious reasons, typically during their sleep in their cribs. Um, exposure even to secondhand smoke has been shown to increase the incidence of SIDS. Um, sudden infant death syndrome has been reduced by about 40% over the last two decades by virtue or as a result of a public education campaign called Back to Sleep. Um, analysis of sudden infant death syndrome deaths found that most infants had been put to sleep on their bellies. Many had been put to sleep um, well wrapped up in cribs with pillows, with poofy crib liners. <coughs> and, and apparently there is some subtle brainstem difficulty with the reflexive regulation of breathing. And some infants, if their breathing is even slightly obstructed, don't have the reflex movements that would get them to wiggle around and get their heads, their air passages um, back to where there's a clear flow of air. And as a result, the um, breathing stops and the infants die. So if infants are routinely put on their backs to sleep on firm rather than squishy soft mattresses without lots of cushy stuff in their cribs, um, they're much less likely if they have this vulnerability which you seldom know about in advance, they're much less likely to succumb to SIDS. Um, and again, the incidence of SIDS has dropped dramatically uh, as a result of public education about factors associated with SIDS mortality. All aspects of a mother's health affect prenatal health of the developing infant. The mother's age, 
the mother's nutritional status, diseases she suffers from, including her stress level, have an impact on the development of the infant. Babies born to mothers who are 15 or younger are much more likely to die than babies born to mothers who are in their 20s. Now, there appear to be at least two causes for this. Um, one is that very young mothers are much less likely than older mothers to have received adequate prenatal care. Uh, it's unfortunately the case that many times if a very young girl becomes pregnant, she maintains plausible deniability um, in her own head and with people around her by controlling what she eats, not gaining a lot of weight, and as a result, undernourishing the developing fetus. Um, additionally, because of lack of prenatal care, lack of information about the various nutritional requirements of the developing baby, um, very young mothers are likely to experience deficiencies in calcium, deficiencies in protein, deficiencies in other minerals that are essential for development of the baby. Um, so economic and educational factors play probably a very large role in increased infant mortality to very young women. Um, but another is that the reproductive tracts of young women are not as um, ready for childbearing as those of women in their early to mid-twenties. We, um, particularly those of us who have or had uh, professional ambition, who pursue higher education, are uncomfortable with the biological reality that there's an optimum biological period for child rearing. And that appears to be late teens, early to mid 20s. After the late 20s, fertility drops off fairly sharply. And we have assistive reproductive technologies today that will enable many sort of sub-fertile couples to nonetheless conceive um, and have children. Um, but the process works best when it works naturally, and the optimal period for that is young adulthood. Um, we've talked about the role of inadequate folic acid in the maternal diet and neural tube defects, the most common of which is spinal bifida, the most devastating of which is anencephaly, or failure of the cortex um, and th the skull to develop. Um, women who are deficient in calcium are likely to lose teeth and suffer early osteoporosis because the fetus is essentially a parasite in the mother's body and unless calcium deprivation is devastatingly severe, um, what the fetus is going to do is pull calcium out of the mother's skeleton and the most available calcium happens to be 
in the jaw. Um, so women, prior to our understanding of nutritional requirements, quite commonly lost a tooth or two with every pregnancy. Um, where a woman has inadequate caloric intake, inadequate protein intake during pregnancy, the fetus is at increased risk for um, heart disease, uh, and there's strong epidemiological evidence that the risk of schizophrenia is increased where there's maternal malnutrition. Um, many diseases, including most sexually transmitted diseases, can also harm the developing fetus. The mother's mental health during pregnancy has long-term effects that extend beyond pregnancy. So what happens when we experience stress? Our cortisol levels go up, our adrenaline levels go up, blood flow is increased to the periphery of our body. Blood flow is decreased to our viscera. In a pregnant woman, the viscera, of course, include the uterus. So when adrenaline and cortisol are elevated, there's reduced blood flow to the uterus. That means reduced oxygen to the fetus. Where a mother experiences chronic severe stress, there's an accumulating body of evidence that suggests that the stress response system of her child, which is sometimes known as the HPA axis, and that stands for hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. The um, HPA system or axis is sensitized to stress. Um, what that typically means is that individual who prenatally was exposed both to reduced blood flow and to high circulating levels of adrenaline and cortisol, but particularly cortisol, is going to be hyperreactive to stress. They're going to be less able to regulate their own arousal, their own distress when irritating, bad, novel things happen. Um, and that these symptoms of heightened stress reactivity, difficulty in self-regulation of arousal persist at least into early childhood. They're um, evident in infancy, they're evident in the early toddler and preschool years. Approximately 38 weeks after conception, the uterine muscles begin to contract, initiating um, the process of birth. Many aspects of the birth experience, including the squeezing that the um, infant is subjected to in the birth canal, increase the likelihood that the neonate will survive. It stimulates hormonal changes, it stimulates um, respiratory changes, all of which prepare the baby for existence in a new world. The plates of the skull prenatally are not fused. 
they're connected with um, fairly flexible um, cartilaginous tissue. As a result, while the head is pushed through the birth canal by uterine contractions, and that um, includes being pushed through um, the pubic symphysis, or the, the opening in the pelvis, um, the plates in the head move. The skull becomes slightly elongated. So babies who were born after normal vaginal delivery, um, at least temporarily, have something of the appearance of cone heads. Um, to the extent that labor is prolonged and the baby is pushed for longer, um, the conical appearance of the head is um, even more exaggerated. Um, the bones of the skull fairly rapidly shift back into their normal position and the process of ossification of the cranial sutures, which are also known as fontanelles, um, proceeds over the first year, year and a half of the infant's life. Childbirth practices, which are heavily medicalized in this country, um, vary a great deal culture to culture. Typically, there are two goals involved in childbirth practices. One is ensuring the health and safety of the mother and the newborn. Um, the other is integrating the new person into the social group, into the culture. Um, in our society, we typically place health and safety above all other concerns. But there's, there's um, growing recognition that in many cases, in normal pregnancies, we have over-medicalized childbirth, um, and many hospitals have dedicated birthing centers where normally progressing pregnancies um, can um, end in a delivery that includes the presence of multiple family members. Um, my first child was born in 1972, and in those days, fathers were never in the labor room. So, as uh, an indicator of how different things were, um, my first husband spent most of my labor in the waiting room smoking in the hospital. People don't smoke in hospitals anymore, and fathers uh, don't excuse themselves from the process of their wife's delivery of their children, uh, at least not typically anymore. Um, second marriage, um, fast forward many years, when my other children were born, um, my husband was in the delivery room with me with a camera, which fortunately he was too excited to use because the last thing in the world that I wanted um, were any pictures of me delivering uh, those two ba those babies uh, or 
any pictures of my swollen red face in the hours immediately after labor and delivery. Um, vaginal delivery is hard work. Women are typically exhausted, um, red-faced for hours, um, puffy, uh, not to mention often very, very grumpy. This country has um, one of the highest cesarean section rates in the world. Um, the slide is actually not accurate anymore. Um, I believe Brazil leads the world now with 35% um, cesarean rate. Um, New Jersey, however, leads all 50 states in the U.S. with a cesarean rate that rivals that of Brazil. Um, certainly physicians concerns about liability are one issue leading to um, increased use of cesarean delivery in which an incision is made somewhere in the abdomen or through the abdominal wall and then an incision is made into the uterus and the baby is removed rather than being squeezed out of the uterus and through um, the vagina. Um, But many people have illusions about how safe cesarean delivery is. Um, with cesarean, there is always the risk of fatal hemorrhage. There is occasionally the risk of a devastating hemorrhage. Um, the, the worst case is uterine rupture and hemorrhage. Um, but it's very, very rare in a normal delivery. The conditions that make it likely can be identified well before a delivery date through the various imaging techniques that we have available. Uh, the most common um, cause of um, serious hemorrhaging and uh, fetal damage um, is a condition known as placenta previa. When the placenta has attached to the uterine wall covering the um, inner mouth of the cervix, uh, which leads to the birth canal. Um, in the case of placenta previa, a, a, a cesarean section is absolutely what's called for. The, the mother and fetus will probably both die if the woman progresses to normal labor. Um, once the baby is born, um, the baby typically cries fairly loudly. That first cry um, isn't an indicator that the baby is in pain. It's an indication that the baby's respiratory system is working. Um, if babies don't cry, their bottoms are slapped, um, which doesn't hurt them, but does jolt a neurologically normal and healthy baby um, into a gasping cry. The neonate is evaluated and given an APGAR score 
um, immediately after delivery and again in a few minutes. The APGAR score uh, gives babies a score of 0, 1, or 2 on things like um, color, movement, respiration. And if the APGAR score is depressed, the child is whisked away to a neonatal intensive care nursery for examination and very close monitoring to make sure that respiration is established, that circulation is maintained. Um, if the APGAR score is normal, the baby's typically quickly wiped off and handed to the new mother. A newborn's state varies dramatically um, over the course of a typical 24-hour circle. The term state refers to the infant's level of arousal, level of attentiveness to the environment. And neonatal states are characterized um, in six different categories ranging from a deep immobile sleep in which the baby's muscle tone is slack and the baby looks and acts like a rag doll to a very active involvement with the environment. Um, eye contact with caretakers, wiggling, um, sort of diffuse vocalization. Neonates pay attention to faces pay attention to things that move. Neonates have been observed to be able to imitate some facial expressions. Um, there is debate over the nature of this imitation, but if you have access to a relatively new baby and you hold the baby at arm's length and make goofy faces, particularly if you slowly stick your tongue out, pull it back in your mouth, stick your tongue out, pull it back in your mouth, or open your eyes very wide, slowly, keep them open, then close them open them again or make a, a big O mouth again doing it slowly opening and closing your mouth. Um, quite often you will see these facial gestures imitated by the baby. Neonates can make and maintain eye contact and will slowly though very awkwardly track moving objects that grab their attention. Babies who are born prematurely, babies who are born under the influence of drugs, whether those are illegal drugs that the pregnant woman took shortly before delivery or um, anesthetics administered to the mother to ease the pain of labor, um, responsiveness may not be present. Um, it may be lower um, to completely absent. Uh, typically, where anesthesia has been administered to the mother, uh, neonatal responsiveness recovers in, uh, to normal levels in a matter of hours. Um, physicians and researchers characterize infant state in terms of six different states. 
um, active sleep in which the infant's eyes are closed but there will be wiggling and movement of the limbs quiet sleep in which the infant's muscle tone is slack and there's no movement crying active awake in which the infant is wiggling its arms and legs maybe making some noise um, but isn't clearly attending to any one person any one thing alert awake the infant is clearly keeping its gaze on someone's face or an interesting object typically movement of the limbs is um, somewhat suppressed during an alert awake state and what's most noticeable is what's going on with the baby's eyes with the baby's face the eyes are wide open um, focused on a particular object and, and finally drowsing in which the infant alternates between periods of having eyes open without clearly attending to anything in the environment and eyes closed but with some movement. Um, as you can see from the uh, pie chart on slide 49, um, newborns spend about 17 hours a day, so most of every day, in some variation of sleeping, sleeping with movement, sleeping without movement, um, being asleep, awake, asleep, awake, and relatively little time in an active awake or alert awake state. Um, this is a good thing because this means that the mother who may have just gone through the fairly exhausting process of delivering the baby um, has an opportunity to rest, to get additional sleep. Um, and that opportunity typically doesn't last very long. Um, now, while babies may sleep for 17 hours, they don't sleep for 17 continuous hours. They may sleep for 30 minutes, sleep for an hour, and then be awake, um, cry for attention, then fall back asleep. Newborns sleep twice as much as young adults. And the pattern of their sleep changes fairly dramatically. Um, prenatally, 95% of sleep is REM sleep. Um, at birth, about 50% of sleep is REM sleep. And over time, that drops to the 20% to 25% that characterizes young adults. Um, one theory is that fetuses have such a high level of REM sleep in order to stimulate the occipital cortex, the visual processing centers of the brain, because the visual sense is the one that receives the least stimulation um, during the course of fetal development. Um, so this theory suggests that there's so much REM sleep 
to promote the early development of the visual system. Um, in the neonate, initially crying simply reflects physical state. I'm uncomfortable. I'm wet. Ah, these blankets are too tight. Um, I wish they'd be looser. Of course, none of this is represented in the brain of the neonate verbally, but the infant experiences some sort of discomfort. Um, it may be physical. It may be more emotional. I liked being held. It doesn't feel good to not be held. Um, where infants are raised by responsive caretakers, crying quickly becomes a communicative act, not simply a reflexive response to discomfort of some sort. So what happens is the baby's uncomfortable, the baby cries, the parents respond. The baby learns that crying brings the attention of the parents. As parents become experienced with an individual baby, they come to hear different modulations in the cries of their infant. Um, many mothers will tell you, oh, that cry means she's hungry. That cry means she's uncomfortable. Um, different vocal patterns for an individual often do signal different sorts of discomfort. Social emotional discomfort, I'd rather be held, I'd rather be rocked, um, and physical discomfort. Adults more or less automatically respond to infant crying with a state of upset. It doesn't feel good to hear an infant cry. It particularly doesn't feel good to hear an infant cry if you're on an airplane and it's not your infant. Um, but particularly for mothers, if you hear your infant cry, if a mother hears her infant cry, she is motivated to stop the crying, to find the source of distress and remove it so that the infant is soothed. Sometimes babies cry and none of the approaches that parents use reduce the discomfort. When that happens, it's very, very frustrating for new parents, particularly with a first child. Um, where crying persists and there's no apparent physical reason for crying, children are diagnosed with colic. It's important where a pediatrician has said a child has colic that parents receive social support from nurses, from grandparents, from friends, um, and information that assures them that their colicky baby will one day no longer be colicky, that it's not their fault that their baby is colicky, and that crying doesn't necessarily indicate something seriously wrong with the baby. Um, if you read the grim stories in the newspaper, you know that with some regularity, 
um, typically males, typically not the father of infants or young children, respond to persistent crying um, by physical abuse that uh, may result in the death of a child. Um, crying children are distressing if they're yours and you love them. Crying children are really annoying if they aren't yours if you don't love them. Infant mortality in this country is 23rd highest in the world. And African American and Hispanic infants are much more likely to die before their first birthday than Euro American babies, with the highest rates um, among African American infants. Lack of health insurance, poverty, lack of information about prenatal nutrition, prenatal care, um, and the conditions that are required for um, a healthy infant um, are associated with these high rates of infant mortality. Um, infant mortality is much higher for babies born to very young women. Um, where very young women are having infants um, in this society, they are typically members of minority groups. Um, babies who were born before 35 weeks gestation are described as being born prematurely. The normal length of gestation or pregnancy is 38 weeks. So if you're more than three weeks early, you're characterized as premature. Um, some premature infants are normal birth weight. Normal birth weight is seven and a half pounds. What that means is that the average full-term baby weighs seven and a half pounds. Infants who weigh less than five and a half pounds are considered to be low birth weight regardless of gestational age. Infants who are small given the norms for their gestational age are described as small for gestational age. They small for gestational age infants um, may be full term or preterm. Low birth weight babies are at greater risk for medical complications than normal birth weight babies. They're at greater risk for developmental delays, for a variety of motor problems. Um, they're typically less responsive to their parents than um, larger babies. Um, and the more underweight they are, the higher the risks. The majority of low birth weight babies catch up to normal developmental milestones sometime in early childhood. Um, neonatal intensive care nurseries in the days when my first child was born um, kept parents away from babies until babies were thought to be ready to go home. There was relatively little technology other than um, keeping babies warm, manipulating the oxygen in incubators that was available for treating, 
premature and low birth weight babies and parents were thought to be a threat. Um, we now understand that contact with parents is really essential and parents are commonly involved in providing some of the physical care for low birth weight and premature babies. Um, massage um, is frequently taught to um, mothers and fathers of premature infants. One of the things that massage does is, in addition to providing stimulation, providing an opportunity um, for the parents of a fragile infant to do something for their infant is replace the tactile stimulation that the child would receive in the womb with stimulation now that they're um, out in the world. Um, the pictures on slide 57 are of a little girl who was born uh, I think 23, 24 weeks gestation, weighing only 9.9 .9 ounces, so slightly more than a kilo, slightly more than half a pound, um, no, slightly more than a quarter of a kilo. Um, she was born into an affluent family with good medical insurance that provided her optimal treatment in a neonatal intensive care nursery. Um, she received early intervention services and initially experienced some motor delays, but because of her attentive, responsive parents, because of the excellent medical care that she received, and no doubt because of her own nature, um, she's developing normally. She's still very petite. Um, she will be small, was and will be small, but she's a good student. She's an accomplished young musician very small newborns are at risk, at risk for death, at risk for blindness, deafness, paralysis, um, but if they receive good care, um, if parents have the knowledge, parents have the emotional, physical, financial resources, um, normal or close to normal development is possible. When my second child was born, um, it was in the mid-80s, it was in the midst of the crack cocaine epidemic. Um, all my kids were premature. Uh, the neonatal intensive care nursery was primarily full of babies who had been born early to crack addicted mothers. Um, cocaine can induce uterine contractions. So in a pregnant woman, um, coca continued cocaine use will frequently result in premature delivery of a baby who has cocaine in their system. Um, some of these babies were the size of this girl. Um, some of them had been abandoned in literally in trash cans and would be found by neighbors, found by garbage men, 
um, ambulances would be called they'd be brought to the hospital uh, I I have very painful memories of being in the nursery with my son every day for two weeks and seeing some of these babies come and go um, fairly quickly with no one to hold them no one to rock them no one to massage them um, cocaine addiction cocaine abuse in pregnant women uh, really really has devastating effects um, parenting low birth weight and premature infants is difficult and it's particularly difficult if parents don't have a good idea of what to expect in terms of what their baby's going to look like, what their baby's going to um, act like, how their baby's development is going to proceed. When a woman is pregnant um, and is happy about the pregnancy um, and has a reliable partner who's supporting her through the pregnancy. He's going to be supportive and by her side um, after the baby's born. Um, she anticipates a healthy, responsive, happy newborn who undoubtedly is going to be a lot of work to take care of, but whose responsiveness to her caretaking um, is going to inspire her love and devotion. Well, that doesn't happen when you give birth to a sick or premature infant. And the milestones, smiling at six to eight weeks, reaching for things at three months, accomplishing um, manual manipulation of objects uh, by six to seven months, sitting up at six months with support, sitting up without support by eight months, walking sometime around your first birthday, talking sometime around the first birthday. Those things may not happen on that timeline with an infant who's very small, with an infant who's premature. So it's critical that parents have a lot of information and a lot of support from other family members um, and from a, a variety of medical and social service um, service providers. It's hard work and you feel guilty, you feel inadequate, you experience a lot of stress. Mothers are typically sent home the day after a delivery now. Um, if you leave your baby in the hospital for weeks or even months, uh, it's very, very far removed from the fantasy experience of parenthood. Risk factors um, for prematurity and low birth weight tend to reoccur. The more risk factors present in a woman's life, uh, the, a pregnant woman's life, the more likely it is that she'll have a low birth weight infant. Um, in spite of multiple risk factors, however, some children do extremely well. And this phenomenon of developmental resilience, both when it occurs in children who are born prematurely, who are born low birth weight, who are um, 
born with medical problems and when it occurs in children who are born full term but born into families that can be characterized in terms of multiple risk factors. So when development proceeds normally, proceeds well, in spite of multiple risk factors, we speak about developmental resilience. And a lot of research um, has been done, is being done, to identify what characterizes developmentally resilient children um, and to try to promote greater resilience among other at-risk children. Um, one of the things that we know is that children who overcome the odds that seem stacked against them, whether those are medical odds or socioeconomic odds, um, they typically have at least one responsive loving adult in their life. It may be a parent, it may be a grandparent, it may be an aunt or uncle, it may even be a neighbor. Um, but there's someone who is a constant presence, a, a beacon of light, um, a source of stability. Additionally, they typically possess some personal characteristics that promote positive reactions, that evoke positive reactions in other people. Um, this may be their ability to be uh, socially responsive to other people. It may be um, evident intelligence. Um, sometimes it's something as simple as physical beauty. But there's something about the child that causes most other people to respond to them positively and there is at least one source of strong consistent support